This is my first time in Mississippi. I think I've flown over it, but I never walked on the, the turf of it. And I was told whenever Kurt and I spoke about um, me coming that I was be, could be, would be given roughly an hour for each lecture, but I see that won't happen because Mike couldn't stop blabbing. So I'd like those who, that who have the authority to enact some positive laws that forbid him precepts and penalties that forbid him from being asked to try to sell books before my lecture. Is that fair? On stone tablets. Yeah. I have the great privilege of repeating everything Dr. Renahan said in different words. We need to talk before we... We did talk, but I was... My title is uh, Defining Our Terms, uh, Technical Nomenclature, I'll define that word, and the Law of God. Going outside the confession, because I'm, my contention, and I learned this from Dr. Renahan. By the way, we're on, this is year 25 of our conference circuit. We've been on the conference circuit together, I'm joking, for 25 years. And Mike has his tables, we have some tables, we have golf towels, coffee mugs, and... <laughs> I'll be signing the inside of the coffee mugs after this lecture. We did, in 1999 or 2000, did our first conference together, and mysteriously, by the grace of God, we're still both alive. We're actually friends still, and we're doing three, if not four, conferences together this year, um, and I, I count it a great privilege. So Dr. Renahan, many years ago, taught me that you can't understand the confession unless you understand the context in which the confession was given. So that's why I say technical nomenclature and the law of God in 17th century discussion, which means you have to know the 16th, 15th, and all the way back to the canonical writers of the Greek New Testament, Hebrew Old Testament. So we're going to look at technical language. Our confession is the product of more than a century and a half of post-Reformation theological discussion. It reflects the thinking of the movement sometimes called Protestant Orthodoxy, which itself borrows insights from the Reformation and pre-Reformation eras. And because of this, it uses technical terms and phrases found in the discussions behind and feeding into our confession on the law of God, some of those you heard in the first lecture. So in order to acquaint ourselves with the theological thought world of that day, we need to know the nomenclature of that day, and here's my definition of nomenclature. I mean the system of names used by our forebears while discussing the law of God. I don't know where I found that definition, but I really liked it. Maybe I invented it myself, huh? Unfortunately, I didn't. System of names. So I'm saying there's a system of names, there's tags, there's terms there's phrases that are used in the literature, not only of the confession, but behind and preceding the confession. These terms, these phrases are embedded with concepts, and you can't read your own concepts into the terms, because then you can't read the literature properly. And then we can't even have a discussion, because you're using the same word with different meaning. So I'm saying this is, this is pretty important. We get these terms right, what are they? And then the concepts that the original authors of these and users of these embedded in the term, then we can read their documents properly. So I'm only going to do a survey. I'm not going to do all the terms, all the phrases. 
Some of them were already done by Dr. Ranhan. I'll, I'll just um, skip over those or just read a sentence or two. So this survey I'm going to provide will aid the current discussion by putting it into a recognized context of conversation that predates us and upon which what we confess is built. So as the good doctor quoted Richard Muller's second edition of his Dictionary of Latin and Greek Theological Terms, do you have any of those, Mike? Just get out of here. You should know better by now. How old are you, 90? You haven't learned this by now? Mike, you need to get the second edition of Muller's Dictionary and have them at places like this, okay? Um, that's a very important tool. I'll be reading some of those. I'll be reading outside of it as well. Now, it's proper to remind ourselves that doing theology involves utilizing terms and phrases that have evolved over time in an attempt to, what I call, encapsulate crucial biblical teachings. We use technical terms and phrases to accommodate wide swaths of truth, putting these truths into brief theological shorthand. That's what a, a creed is. That's what a confession is. So acquainting ourselves with a theological nomenclature, the system of names, typically utilized in the discussions on the law of God in and prior to the 17th century will help us when coming to the literature behind our confession and the specific confessional assertions found in our confession. Now, let me briefly justify the use of such language. Some people don't. They want to say, well, just use Bible words, right? then all the preacher can do on Sunday is, guess what? Either read verbatim the text or select Bible words from all over the place, put them all together, though they don't make sense, but they're Bible words, right? Now, nobody's, that's a reduction to absurdity, right? Nobody's hopefully going to say that. But let me justify the use of the language, use of technical terminology, much of the technical terminology used in Reformed discussions of the law of God is not to be found in the Bible. The phrase positive law is not in the Bible, correct? Is the concept embodied in the phrase in the Bible? Yes. Moral law is the phrase in the Bible? No. Is the concept? Yes. Natural law? No. Threefold division? Threefold use? No, no. And if Dr. Ranahan likes to say no, 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 because he's a good Trinitarian. Uh, so how can we justify this? We're going to use words not found in the Bible to describe the Bible. The way I put it is this. We're going to use words not in the Word to describe the Word. Is it legitimate to use words not in the Word to describe the Word? Now, usually people at first, they go, students, when I started using that, would go, sola scriptura, sufficiency of Scripture. If Scripture is not sufficient to define itself, then put all your lexicons, Hebrew and Greek lexicons, throw them away. You can't use them because all you can use is just the Bible itself. But by the way, did you know that, I don't know what percentage of words in the Bible are what they call hopox legomenons. <clears throat> you know what that means. Words used, coined by the author and used only once in Scripture. I don't know how many there are. But all the other words in Scripture, not coined by the Scripture writer who uses it, all the other words predate the Bible. That's weird. 
You mean words used in the word predate the word itself? Yeah. So here's my question. Is it appropriate to use words not in the word to explain the word? Or, or excuse me, only a rash kind of, of biblicism would answer no. Uh, my rash, by rash here, I mean displaying or proceeding from a lack of careful consideration to the possible consequences of an assertion. So here's my question again. Is it appropriate to use words not in the Bible to explain the Bible? And if somebody says no, I'm saying, slow down, you need to think through the entailments of that answer. To assert no to the question, is it appropriate to use words not in the word to explain the word, would require preachers of the word to be limited to words in the word to explain the word, which no Christian does. Watch this. I can prove to you from the Bible that it, it, is, it is biblical to use words not in the word to explain the word. Here it is. Peter's sermon in Acts 2 cites itself, cites Excuse me. The Bible itself in Peter's sermon in Acts 2 cites itself. Okay, so Peter's sermon recorded in Acts 2 is the Bible. And the Bible cites the Bible in Acts chapter 2, Psalm 16, if you remember. Then contains an explanation of a citation utilizing words not in the citation to explain the citation. Is my time up yet? <laughs> Some of you are going, it should be. Where's those kids? I threatened them. Don't fall asleep. There they are. I saw them in the back. I told you I was going to make eyes with you. You fall asleep, I'm going to throw a hymnal at you. This is important. It is, really. Because in our day, there's this tendency. It's not just in our day. And it was in my mind and my thinking, too. I just want to hear Bible words in Bible contexts. I don't, I don't need all the highfalutin theological jargon. That's for the, that's for the, that's for the theologians. Um, just give me the word. Well, we don't tell doctors, please don't use technical terms when you're explaining my problem. Use them, but explain them. Uh, and so here, I'm going to use them and explain them later, but now I'm justifying it. So, Peter cites Psalm 16, 8 through 11. Some of you know that. In Acts 22, 25 through 28, he draws an explanatory conclusion in verses 30 through 31 in these words. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption." So if you read the text, which I'm assuming you know it, Peter's, Peter uses the words Christ and resurrection to explain the meaning of Psalm 16. Neither word is in Psalm 16. He's using words not in the word to explain the word. He's doing something else as well. In order to set up his theological conclusion from Psalm 16, Peter puts its human author, David, in a broader Old Testament context. Being a prophet... And now he, he's, he's thinking about David, and he says, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn an oath to him, here's what he's saying. Although David wrote Psalm 16, 8 
through 11, there was more in his mind while he was writing that. He knew something, he had more information. His cognitive peripheral vision of revelation given to him was wider than just the text he wrote. He knew that he was a prophet. He knew that God swore to him. Where is that in the Old Testament? 2 Samuel 7, 2 Samuel 23, Psalm 89 at least. That God had sworn to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would rise up, raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. These words allude to at least those three Old Testament texts I mentioned. So if it's good enough for the apostle, should be good enough for us, right? When we're explaining the Bible, it's okay to use words not in the word to explain the word. So I think that the use of technical terms is warranted if for no other reason than the non-use of such terms is absurd, reducing our explanation of Scripture to a syllabic devotion to the bare words of Scripture without recourse to explaining the meaning of those words other than with those very words. You know that the problem, one of the problems that brought rise to the Nicene Creed and the, and the uh, statement of Chalcedon was this. The heretics were using words. The same words found in the Bible that the Orthodox were using, but they were stuffing them with different meanings. So then the Orthodox were forced to say, no, that word means this, using words not in the word to explain the word, homoousios of one substance. So I think it's absurd uh, and naive to force people to use just Bible words. For example, if someone asked, what does John 1.14 mean? We'd have to say what it says. It says, and the word became flesh. So it means, and the word became flesh. Let's pray. That doesn't work that way, right? I and the Father are one. What does that mean? I and the Father are one. Great. We can shake hands with the Arians. We agree with them. I think it's a naive, sophomoric at best understanding of the function of words. You know what words are? Words are signs. Words are things that we call words, that signify things. So the word became flesh here. The word here is a thing, a word, signifying the Son of God, right? And then became flesh is a, words signifying the assumption of our nature. I just use words, not in the word, to explain the word. Any other way just doesn't cut it. So now that I got that off my chest, what's the name of this conference? <laughs> Of the Holy Scriptures. Oh, that's in April. Um, natural law. Did you, you quoted Muller, right, on natural law. I'm going to go behind Muller to a guy named Zonke. My mother's maiden name is Italian. Zonke's Italian, so I had to get an Italian in there. He was an Italian refugee in Geneva, Basel, Strasbourg, Heidelberg, and elsewhere. He was an early Protestant scholastic along with Beza and Vermigli. In, uh, in volume four of his theological writings, he addressed the issue of the law of God, first published in 1670, 1617, after his death, I believe, as far as I can tell. It has been reprinted under the title, On the Law in General. In that work, he says this, natural law is the will of God, the divine rule and principle for knowing what to do and what not to do, inscribed upon the hearts of all people by God himself. So that's... That sounds similar to our confession. It's very traditionally Christian to speak that way. Later, he adds these interesting words. Yet, 
yet because the Decalogue defines and describes the same things that are called natural law, the Ten Commandments themselves are often called natural law. One thing to take from this is that Zanki appears to be following a well-established conversation about the law of God. Our confession follows a Savoy. Savoy follows Westminster. Westminster appointed Anthony Burgess. Behind chapter 19 is Anthony Burgess. Behind Anthony Burgess isn't his wife, although she was behind him and supporting him, I'm sure. Like she's supposed to be supporting you. It was, I think, Franciscus Junius, because if you read Junius, you're going, I know who Burgess read. And then when you read Bur- Bur- uh, Junius, you go, I know who Junius read. He read Zanke. In fact, the introduction to this recently published work by Zanke claims that Zanke presents the Protestant equivalent of Aquinas's Treatise on the Law. Can I use that name? Oh, I, the way I do it at my church is Thomas Aquinas. Thomas Aquinas. That's interesting. They're, they're saying this late medieval Roman Catholic had this famous treatise on the law. The Protestant equivalent to that is Zonke. And I'm saying after Zonke comes Junius. And then after Junius is the Westminster Assembly. There's a, a family. There's a tradition being passed on here. They're not making things up, inventing new doctrines, tagging a text next to a statement. Okay, this is development of Christian doctrine over a long time. I won't read the entry that Dr. Renahan stole, <clears throat> I mean, got from Muller's. Just to say this, my little comment under that is that the natural law is universal because God is the creator of all men. The confession grounds the universality of law and therefore guilt on the basis of creation than Federal headship in Adam and fall. That's very important. And we are all creatures among God's creation from which we can learn. Not only do we have this, let me just keep going. Turretin, let's go to Turretin, because you know who Turretin read? And I, my thinking is, I can hear in Turretin, I can hear Mr. Burgess. I can go back farther. Which way am I going on the timeline? I get mixed up. Uh, for you, I think it would be this way. Like, so Burgess is here, uh, or Turretin's here, uh, mid to late 17th century. Then there's the Westminster Assembly, and then there's the Junius book that I'll, I'll quote in a minute. And then there's Vermigli, and then there's, you could go back to Calvin because some of the things are in Calvin. But it predates Calvin as well. It goes all the way back to the canonical writers of the Greek New Testament, Hebrew Old Testament. Here's Turretin, natural laws founded on the natural right of God, being founded on the very holiness and wisdom of God. The natural law is just and good antecedently to the command of of God. Peanuts. Don't eat peanuts before you lecture. Natural law is commanded because just and good in light of who God is and what man is as his image bearer. Natural law is the practical rule of moral duties to which men are bound by nature. God is creator, man is creature. God is the way he is, and yet he makes his creature, in some sense, like him, and therefore responsible to him. 
So due to man's created constitution, this law is written on his heart. Confession 4, 2, and 3 echoed in 19, 1, and 2. I think Dr. Renan will go through that, or at least mention it. Though now it's obscured by sin, chapter 6 of the confession, we're reading it sideways now, or horizontally, natural law is not acquired by tradition or formal instruction. Its principle, this is very kind of technical here, uh, the principle in this sense is that from which something in some way proceeds or the starting point of knowing a thing. Okay, so we have these principles that we're created with. And it's out of these principles, from this, these principles or this principle, uh, we go acquire the information the principle is aiming us at. So we have innate things and we have acquired Some of you have heard that distinction. The principle is innate, but its conclusions are acquired discursively as man engages nature within and without. If you don't know what that means, that's fine. This law was, however, this natural law was promulgated. Ever heard that word before? It's probably in a hymn someplace. By the way, that was a wonderful hymn. I'm going to quote that hymn in its entirety, my last message is promulgated, that means formally published on Sinai, which differs from the natural law in form, though identical in its substance. Okay, so it's not, whatever this natural law is and this moral law promulgated on Sinai, they're certainly related, but it's not like God tattooed Exodus chapter 20 verses 3 through 17, on your heart, okay? That's not what the old guys are saying. They're saying, when God ends up writing this law on stone tablets, it ends up being reflective of. It's a different form, but same in substance as that which is on the heart or conscience of all men. So form and substance, those are things that we need to distinguish between very carefully. Now, you said I had till 10? You know, it's, six, it's 6.30 where I live, so we got plenty of time here. I've read, I read through my notes a lot, and I know how long it takes to go through it. We're in trouble. Or you're in trouble. So Protestant orthodoxy taught that the Decalogue summarily contains the moral law. If you've read the larger catechism, you know that language. I'm going to quote it later. And The Decalogue is the inscripturated form of what the old writers called the natural law as to its substance. So this distinction between substance and form is very important. Form can actually have, in a distinct form, this natural law can actually have a distinct function that's new. Like being identified as the covenant. The Ten Commandments in the books of Moses are identified as the covenant. Which covenant? The Old or Mosaic Covenant. Did the Ten Commandments function as the heart of the Mosaic or Old Covenant prior to the Old Covenant's existence? No. So there we have a distinct form with a new function. Westminster Larger Catechism, question 98, the moral law is summarily comprehensive summarily comprehended in the Ten Commandments. And this refers to the fact that the substance, 
The underlying stuff of the moral law is assumed in the propositions of the Decalogue as contained in Exodus, and I'll say Deuteronomy 5. The form and function fits the redemptive historical circumstances in which it was given. The substance is always relevant and applicable to man because he's created in the image of God and lives in God's revelatory world. So... The form is the heart-soul center of the older Mosaic Covenant. The substance is that which is common to all of us because we're creatures in the image of God. The form can have a distinct function as the heart of the older Mosaic Covenant, and then that function, because it's a positive function, can cease. John Owen had statements where he he abrogated the, all the, the moral, ceremonial, and civil law altogether. I think the Baptists did it too. As it related to ancient Israel in the land and their covenant with God. That ceased. Very crucial distinctions have to be made. The applications of this natural law, or its moral expression in the Old Testament, uh, may shift based on redemptive historical changes, like, it would take a pretty big change, pretty big shift, pretty big fulfillment of something to shift a lot of these big events and things that are commanded in the Old Testament. How about the incarnation, sufferings, and glory of the Son of God? That's a pretty big event. Like the big boom, bang, splat, uh, smash the cymbals, the hugest events of all events in the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son. And notice the language there. Notice it tomorrow. Moral law. Moral law. Muller defines moral law. Did you, did you read a moral law thing? Okay, here's moral law. Specifically and preeminently, the, the Decalogue, Ten Commandments, as distinct from the lex ceremonialis, ceremonial law, and the lex civilis, civil law. By the way, confession says ceremonial law or laws. Judicial law or laws? Plural. You don't, you haven't memorized the confession? It's plural. Ceremonial laws. Sundry judicial laws. Not like, okay, turn to page 422 in your Pentateuch. There's the list. See, they're color-coded. The yellow ones are civil, the red ones are ceremonial, and the white ones are moral. That's kind of some of the literature you read like the Reformed Threefold Division thinks there are three lists of laws. No, we don't. Matter of fact, you read the chapter 19 carefully. I'm sure I probably learned this from Dr. Renahan, to read the confession carefully, number one, and then to observe there that sometimes some moral things are mixed in with ceremonial things. There's, they, it's mixed. It's not all just airtight this, airtight the other, and airtight the third. Sometimes... Even ceremonial laws are not to be perpetually obeyed throughout the entirety of Old Covenant Israel's existence. How can they obey the wilderness tabernacle laws if they're not in the wilderness? There are ceremonial... When I read that in Junius, it was... I have the quote later. Uh, some of you preachers are going, he's, he's saying all the stuff he's supposed to say in other lectures in this lecture. That, that's fine. I'm just trying to support what Dr. Renahan was saying. This terminology is pretty important to go 
and understand the confession. So here we have this, these new terms here, moral law, and then he says, distinct from ceremonial and civil. In substance, the moral law is identical with the natural law, but unlike the natural law, it is given by revelation in a form that is clearer and fuller than what is otherwise known to reason. In addition to its revealed form, the law is connected to distinct promises and sanctions <clears throat> designed to induce righteousness and prevent sin. So as noted above, moral law is summarily comprehended in the Decalogue, or Ten Commandments, by the way, not exhausted by it, though the formal promulgation of the Decalogue had a unique redemptive historical context and use. I am the Lord thy God who has taken you out from Israel, whatever the language is. It is nothing other than the natural law incorporated into the Mosaic Covenant in a new form. God incorporates what the theologians are calling natural law into his relation, covenantal relation with ancient Israel in the form of the Ten Commandments. One important thing to note is this, the formal promulgation of the Decalogue was revealed to the people of Israel, 19.3 of our confession, in a unique redemptive historical context and covenantal context, along with judicial laws, plural, 19.3, and sundry judicial laws, plural, which expired together with the state of that people. Very interesting. You have to look at that language later. This is one of the uses of the moral law in the Bible, though it does not exhaust all its uses. So let's just say the moral law is the formally revealed... Uh, uh, expression of the natural law. It's not just for Jews, although it had a unique place in the Jewish economy, in the Jewish church. It's for Gentiles as well. Well, if sin has messed us up, and whatever the law in the heart is, we don't see it. Dr. Renhan was kind of expounding that. It's there, but it's, you know, people take 10 minutes to worship their God. But they're taking time. They know it would be wrong to labor 24-7. we got to rest and do something else. But it's not like they read the Bible as, oh, from, from the creation, of, from the divine rest unto the resurrection of Christ. The day, one day out of seven was the seventh day of the week, and from the resurrection, it is the first called the Christian Sabbath. They, they, they haven't read the Bible. They can't conclude that, but they're groping around. Even pagan nations have... Uh, you know, speed limit laws, I think. Where'd they get those from? The, the, the thou shalt not kill. Preserve life. Shalt not, thou shalt not murder. So then when we read a text like, you know, Exodus whatever, where God writes the, the, the Ten Commandments with his own finger on stone tablets, and then we want to be Biblical in our reading of the Bible, you know what I mean by that? We take the entirety of the Bible with us to every text because if I want to understand a particular text, I want God to tell me everything he's going to tell me first. And he has from Genesis through Revelation. So I take it with me and I read these passages where God writes the, the, the law uh, on stone tablets with his own finger. And then I go to Jeremiah and I see this promise of of. of I will write my law on their hearts. You know, if you may want to make a big deal about word studies, I think it's the same word used 
for writing um, as the original verb used in Exodus 30, whatever it is where God wrote on the stone tablets. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of heart. And I just jumped to the New Testament. You think there's a connection between those three texts? I think what we're seeing here is a transcovenantal um, utility of the natural or moral law. It transcends uh, all covenants. It just doesn't come with a covenant and then it goes. You ever heard that theory? Whatever came with Moses goes with Moses. The stone tablets came with Moses. They went with Moses. Well, it's not that simple because God incorporates something that predates the Mosaic Covenant into the Mosaic Covenant. We'll see that, by the way. You can see that just by reading from Genesis 1-1 to Exodus chapter 20. And ask yourself the question, how does the narrator know that was wrong or right? Where's the standard for that? It's just quite often, in narratives, assumed, right? There's a law code assumed to be somehow in place where men are held responsible for their sins. Sin is, 1 John 3, 4, lawlessness. Was there law and violated law before Moses? All of sin. Did Adam sin? Then he must have had a law, right? Most people would agree, yeah, Adam had a law. But, so you can see that there's transcovenantal utility of natural or moral law. Positive law, Dr. Renan is going to deal with this. Those, that's just plus law. Laws added to circumcision, Lord's Supper, things of that nature. Threefold division of the law. I'm going to have two lectures on this subject. Turton says of the threefold division, he says, the law given by Moses is usually distinguished into three species, okay? Moral, treating of morals or of perpetual duties towards God and our neighbor. Ceremonials of the ceremonies or rites about the sacred things to be observed under the Old Testament. And civil, constituting the civil government of the Israelite people. He says, the moral law is for the most part expressed by a Hebrew word. He translates commandments, excuse me, the ceremonial by a Hebrew word. He translates statutes and the judicial by a Hebrew word. He translates judgments, which the Septuagint renders by entales. These are Greek words, commandments, dikaiomata, statutes, and chrismata, judgments. See what he just did? He said, oh, I read the Old Testament. I see Moses using distinct terms. It's not consistent, by the way. I wish it was. Are you saying there's something about the Bible you don't like? Kind of. I don't want to go on record saying that, but so strike that from the memory. But the Bible does distinguish, call them whatever you want. They are different words that distinguish different laws. We'll look at that at some point. Here, excuse me, that shouldn't have been done. I need a tissue. My wife's not here. Mike, you should have had your tissue and brought it up here or something. So anyway, Turton made the distinctions. Okay, Turton's after the confession. You're going, nobody made the distinctions before. Well, Turton would say, although I use the tradition of interpretation, although I read historical theology, I could have just jumped 
all the way back to Moses because he actually did it. That's why I said this discussion actually starts with the Hebrew and Greek authors. The moral law regards the Israelite people as men. See what he just did? Watch what he does. The moral law regards the Israelite people as men, the ceremonial as the church of the Old Testament expecting the promised Messiah. The civil regards them as a peculiar people who in the land of Canaan ought to have a republic suiting their genius and disposition. The moral law regards the Israelite people, regards the Israelite people as men. The ancient Jews were both men, like us, and men in covenant with God for a specific period of time during redemptive history. No, that's a careful distinction. The threefold division of the law understands the moral law is based on creation and therefore perpetually binding on all men, though in differing ways, and the ceremonial and judicial laws of the old covenant as supplemental to the Decalogue under the Mosaic covenant. Supplemental. The language in uh, Confession 1-4 they don't, I don't think they use that word. Do they use the word supplement or supplemental? No. But the concept's there. Adding to. Besides the law commonly called moral. That's what I'm getting at. God gave to the people ceremonial laws and judicial laws. Ceremonial and judicial laws of the Mosaic Covenant are positive laws. Laws added to the moral law for temporary, redemptive, historical purposes. The threefold division of the law is based on the fact that the Bible makes distinctions between types of law functioning under the Mosaic Covenant and prior to it was murder, a violation of the law of God before Moses pinned Exodus 20. Does the Bible say thou shalt not murder or kill prior to Exodus 20? doesn't say it explicitly, assumes it's bad though, right? Pretty early in the narrative in Genesis 4, right? So, if you want to say, commands are not moral unless they are revealed. Where does the Bible first say, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself? Who said it? What? Leviticus. Leviticus 19 or 17 or one of those. So nobody was under the divine injunction to love their neighbor until Moses penned. We don't want to do that, right? The narrative assumes universal rights and wrongs. To-dos and to-not-to-dos. No-nos and we don't call them yes-yeses. That's a no-no. That's a yes-yes. Maybe we will now from now on. My name will be up on... Wikipedia. Yes, yes. Invented by Marcellus at the... Anyway. So, um, these different types of law functioning under the Mosaic Covenant. And, and uh, the Bible views the principles of the Decalogue as predating its formal promulgation at Sinai, Going back to the creation of man. He already did that. He read Romans 2, 14 and 15. So the Bible views the principles, the moral principles contained in the law at Sinai as predating Sinai, which is kind of weird. Not weird, but think through that. If they're predating it, then some, 
and their laws and whatever form they're in, even in the form of assuming that they're wrong, because that's what the narrative does, they must be pretty important. And they must not be unique to ancient Israel under the covenant enacted by God through Moses. This is not good right here. Uh, I need some tissue. Thank you. Thank you, thank you. See, Mike, this is what you should have had your wife do. Mike's going, shut up, I gotta sell books. Okay, so that was a threefold division. You see how the, why they did that? Just thinking through our Bibles just a little kind of entered you into the, the thought world of these old 17th century guys who were entering the thought world of other people who had read the Bible a lot. Remember Spurgeon said our blood should be Bibline. The more you know the Bible, the more you see these connections. And then when the more you know the Bible and don't see the connections, when somebody shows you the connections, you go, aha. You ever have aha moments? Like, I've read Genesis 43 times. And I, I knew what he said is true. Murder's wrong by pretty early in the narrative. But there's no explicit prohibition against it. It's just assumed to be, you know, a no-no. Conclusion, I've surveyed <clears throat> technical terms utilized in the discussions on the law of God, which appear in Protestant orthodoxy, and are either contained in or assumed by our confession my contention is that we must understand this nomenclature, the system of names, as defined by its original authors, or we are more prone to misunderstand our confession. Okay? So I'm one of those fuddy-duddies that says, get a dictionary, not Webster's, get Muller's, sorry, it's not because I worship Richard Muller. He's the only guy with a dictionary on Latin Greek theological terms. Uh, and he has a second edition that corrects some of the entries from the first edition, which he did like 30 or 35 years before. So the second edition reflects 30 or 35 more years of primary source reading by the probably the foremost expert on that era of Protestant Christianity. If you knew of a book like that, you would want to buy it. There's also another dictionary, Dictionary of Philosophy or something. <clears throat> I think I'm going to quote it tomorrow. If you like Muller, you need to get that one too. So doing the work of reading entries in Muller's dictionary reaps reward, giving us the proper and necessary background in order to a proper understanding of our confession and the literature surrounding it. Okay? Because... The conclusion, the confession of faith, came from a context of discussion. And all this technical jargon, this technical jargon I introduced you to, is broader than just the confession. But the confession either uses the same technical jar jargon or assumes the concepts embodied by the technical jargon it doesn't, but it's out there in the literature of the day. So in my next two lectures, I, if I'm invited to come back here, 
I'll be examining more fully the threefold division of the law. I just introduced you to it. I want to look at it more in depth. I'll be quoting contemporary authors, New Covenant theology advocates and progressive covenantalism advocates, and at least one Sydney Anglican. These all deny the threefold division doctrine. I want them to speak for themselves. I don't want to throw tomatoes at them. Uh, matter of fact, who these men are doesn't really matter. What they're saying matters. So doctrines, not dudes. Propositions or proposals, not persons. Ideas, not individuals. While reading their pushback on this doctrine, I want you to try to recall the definitions of the terms provided in this lecture because sometimes they, they try to utilize the same terms. But guess what happens? They embed in the term different concepts. And so it makes discussion with them nigh unto impossible. I think you will see that often, not always, we speak past each other or misunderstand each other due to not allowing terms to be defined in the same way throughout our interactions. Once I finish letting these Groups speak for themselves on this issue. I'll present arguments from Scripture why we ought to uphold the threefold division of the law. Um, that will be tomorrow. So I am finished. I will pray, and we can. I'll, I'll give it back to the Pastor. Thank you, Lord, for this uh, evening of theology, uh, history, uh, definitions of terms, considering. Old things that we trust reflect even older things, the truths of the written word of God. We pray that you would give us good rest tonight. Thank you for sustaining us through this day. We thank you that it is from you that we have life and breath in all things, even this building and the safety of it. We thank you. Bless, we pray, and bring us back tomorrow uh, and give Dr. Ranahan and I a clear minds, good sleep, good sleep for everybody. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.